Having a Gas is the podcast that chats to the great and the good of the creative industries. And in particular, finds out what makes great music for film, for TV, for commercials, for cooking to, for dancing to, f***ing to, and more. Today, I'm having a gas with Andy Bunday, the creative director of the AM Partnership in Manchester. Andy began his journey at BBH, the legendary London shop that dominated 1990s advertising, getting his breakthrough by sneaking ideas for Audi into Sir John Hegarty's in-tray. Uh, Andy, thanks for coming in. Hey, pleasure. So this is, uh, is this the first time you've been anywhere since, since March? It's not the first time I've been anywhere since March. Yeah, no, no, I went over to see my father the other weekend, but we've been in and out of the office a little bit. Yeah. Um, as you know, I live on the coast, so it's, I haven't missed the commute, you know. Yeah. It's not to be on the trains every day. But yeah. yes, we're getting back into the swing of things now. How are things at the AND partnership coming down, uh, coming down the hill, so to speak, end of Feb, start of March? When did it start to become clear that we're moving out for a bit? Uh, it all happened pretty suddenly, didn't it? I mean, I think it was the same for everybody. That there'd been a lot of talk about this coronavirus and, oh, what do we need to do? And I'll be honest, you know, I was fairly blasé about it. I thought, oh, a bit of an overreaction. I, I, couldn't, yeah. I couldn't really perceive which way it was going to go. Bit of a cough, maybe. And I mean, you know, like most... I think most businesses were a bit ahead of the official lockdown. Yes. And the official lockdown was... 23rd March, thinking back, but I think my last day in the office was the 16th because pretty much from that point of view, everybody had taken the direction that, that they were going to try and work from home. Yeah. We're obviously based in the same building as, as Talk Talk, our primary client, and um, that was their directive. So we were, we, we'd all been working from home pretty much for that week when, um, when Boris announced it. Yeah, yeah. It, was, it, was quite, it was quite an unusual week because... For, until, like you said, the 16th, it was basically personal preference as to whether you were going to try and avoid things or not. So I, even I felt a kind of guilt getting on the tram at commute time uh, <laughs> from like March 8th onwards. I was like, I just don't feel like I should be here. Rory Sutherland, when I spoke to him, he said he came into London on March the 11th. And I think they were ahead of us. Said that the city was deserted by that point. And I don't know what your interpretation of... Um, you know, Boris and his team's reaction to the whole thing was, but he seemed quite reluctant to go ahead with any of it, I think. He seemed pretty blasé. I mean, we won't get into the, the, the yeah. politics of it too much, but I, I mean, as I say, I, I could... It's easy to be wise after the event. This has obviously turned out to be something more serious than I expected it was, if I'm, if I'm really honest about it. Um, whether we've taken the right approach, I guess only time will tell. It's really, really hard. Um, I would say, you know, I've got a much easier job than the people making those sorts of decisions yeah. have had over the last few months. Yeah. Yeah. How has it impacted stuff with um, with Talk Talk? Have they had to change direction? Because I imagine they're obviously primarily a broadband provider, so they've become a lot more in demand. It's been, I mean, in a way, again, I, I, we've been very, very fortunate. We've remained very, very busy um, as an agency um, because, the, you know, our, our client is so fundamentally, you know, in demand at this time where, you know, if you worked for a travel company or something like that, obviously that was a much more difficult situation. Um, I mean, I think clearly these things will impact on everybody ultimately, um, probably negatively because we're going to see a, a, a contraction in the economy and all of that. But um, the short term, it's been quite energising, and we've uh, our, certainly our experience as an agency has been uh, has been that we've managed to make the remote working work very well um, between ourselves and with the client. Everybody just got straight on to whether it was Zoom or Teams or whatever it may yeah. be. Everybody was getting on very well with that, and it's been. I mean, we've never been so busy. It's yeah. been it's been incredible, really. So, have you got more? Um, are you lining up more productions? And you know, has that changed? Obviously, things can't be shot in the way that they used to be. Have you got stuff going um, on there? We are. We're, we're actually just in the process of teeing up a shoot for our our next TV campaign. So that should be taking place before this month's out. Um, the immediate thing that we did, we did a uh, a rework of. One of our previous commercials, which involved some post-production and a revoicing of it for the, just essentially to get a message out there, reassuring people about the reliability of the uh, of the network and that in the wake of the the um, the whole coronavirus thing. So 
In terms of productions, we've continued again with some uh, radio advertising as well, which we're now. So we, that was quite an interesting thing. We were talking before about recording radio ads remotely. And, yes. um, you know, we, we had the situation where uh, our, our actor, our voiceover artist, Joe Hartley, was working essentially from an, an improvised recording studio set up in the cupboard under her stairs. Yeah. So, um, some challenges there, but, you know, you, you get through these things. And now we're returning more to some sort of semblance of normality, of course, because people can travel, um, you know, into into work environments. So it's it's essentially just like, like any other remote recording session would have been. Yeah. But as I think what's been interesting is we have... Where I would have thought it would be very, very difficult, and particularly, you know, in a creative director role, very, very difficult to manage a team remotely. It's one thing to say to a, a copywriter, well, go away, work for home, work, work from home on this for the day, and they can you know, get the blinkers on and do that. But as a creative director where you think, well, I'm the puppet master here, and if I'm working remotely, it's like a, somebody's cut all the strings. But actually, it's not been the case at all. Um, we really, really quickly got on board with it. And I think it's 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 something that we would never have done because there was a bit of a pain barrier in those first seven to ten days. And I think most people would recognise this in just getting used to a new way of working. But now that we've done it, it's quite a revelation and it does suggest all sorts of new possibilities for the future. I think that's like a sort of the model of how things change is you have a problem presents itself and you have to solve it. And that, you know, this is, I think, what you were saying. We all could have done this years ago, but there was no need to go through the uh, yeah. the awkwardness of it. It's, um, I say, Edward de Bono used to write about a thing called an intermediate impossible, which is a, as a creative thinking exercise, you deliberately um, forbid the obvious solution. So, yeah. you know, if you, if you need to design an entrance to a building, but it can't be a doorway. Yeah, really. And it forces you to think, well, how can, you know, there's an illogic, there's a craziness about that. So we've got to work together, but we can't work together. It's an intermediate impossible. Now, with technology, and, I, you know, maybe it's something that we wouldn't have been able to do 20 years ago, but certainly today there was a solution and it forced us to rethink the way that, that, that we were. Now, the idea of the intermediate impossible is that then when you, when you remove that constraint, if you're a firm of, a, of architects who's been thinking about an entrance to a building that isn't a door, and then you say, OK, that was a thinking exercise. Now let's design the entrance to this building. But it might be a different kind of door. Mm. There'll be something about that that's been informed. Um, like kind of water running off a beach as the tide goes out, it finds a, a, a low point in the sand and it runs through it. And by continuing to run and run, digs that gully deeper and deeper and deeper until that after a while, that's the only way it can run. But if you put a dam there, then it's forced to find another way. Yeah. And, and so that, I think, is the purpose of this. And when this lockdown, as this lockdown's lifting now, there'll be a lot that we'll take away from this intermediate impossible that's actually opened up new possibilities for us. I think it's been, you know, really quite an invigorating sort of time in, in, in a way. Yeah, I, I mean, I look forward to, talk, to exploring the, the, the obvious creative aspects of that. But, you know, one thing um, that used to play on my mind, especially when I was working in hospitality when I was younger, um, was inevitably every flu season, every member of staff got sick because we were like, well, we have just never, ever had to and will never have to as an entire collective of people think about stopping spreading infection. Everyone shakes hands, hugs, touches the same stuff. Everyone, you know, drinks, we put it in the, wash it in the sink and all that stuff. And um, it's uh, uh, now no one will have to imagine ever in their lifetime what it would take to uh, stop everyone getting ill if only they would do it, you know, over Christmas, for example, over the flu season. But um, as you said, uh, at one point recently, that was an unthinkable, it'll never happen. You'll never have to explore that way of doing things. And so, well, that's just the obvious way. But yeah, on the creative side, uh, and you know, going off your metaphor um, about the water finding a new way out to sea, uh, have there been any new ways of working that have been a revelation in, on, on the creative and the, the creative collaboration side that you thought, now we're going to do much more of that? Um. It's tricky, actually, because I would, I would say on the creative side, um, you have to be careful with it because I don't know to an extent whether the reason we've done quite well 
is because we had we built up a good bank account and a good credit rating from you know uh, as a team from knitting together well. Yeah. And then after a period of time, you do start to miss some of those aspects of just osmosis that go on when people are in the space. And I also wonder whether. Um, the thing that creative people need to be careful of is just the sameness of always being in the same environment. If you don't, you know, if you were always just working from the same four walls, would that have a negative impact? So we started thinking ahead to just how we might have to adapt our approaches over time. If we could see that creeping in, what could we do to try and um, ensure that we stayed fresh and, yeah. and, and, and you know, kept achieving that 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 stimulus that you used to take for granted when you had a you know a commute into work and then you go out to the cinema or whatever the heck it may be in the evening. All the things that we did in an unthinking way that just you know plant thoughts and ideas in your subconscious that then can come out through your work. Yeah. So that's the thing I think that we're looking to do is just just to be sure we're future proofing ourselves in that eventuality. How do we stop it getting stale? And what can we what can we put in place in the form of just kind of informal, slightly purposeless meetings that just are a gathering where it's just what you've been doing, what you've been working on. Yeah. Just taking the place of, of having stuff on the wall or on a desktop that people could just accidentally see in passing. Our ethos at the AND partnership is to be one team. You know, the the the, the USP of the of the of the business of the agency is is that we're all integrated together. We've got creative strategy. Um, and media in one space. And that we don't necessarily always orchestrate a formal meeting. You know, we are there and, and, and the work's on the wall and our media partners at M6 can see what we're working on and that might spark ideas for them. We hear the, 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 what they're booking, we see their media plan go up and they present it and we think, oh, they're using those spaces, those teams, what can we do with that? So yeah. um, it's just how can we um, synthesise that when we're not all in that one space and how can we, you know, create a, a really fertile um, virtual creative environment for ourselves. That, and that, that's the thing that we're, that we're thinking about for the future. I think that's the thing that we need to look at. And again, probably by the time we really, really get it sussed out, this will all be over and we'll all be back to normal yeah. working. And yet, with the, within the best principles of the intermediate impossible, there'll be something from it that's still relevant. Yes. You know, even even, even as we return to, to the old normal. Yeah. I'm, I'm always a bit wary of the of talk about the new normal. Always seems to be a sort of a, a, a cipher that I'm, we're going to get some hyperbole now. People are going to say, oh, right, you know, we're entering a new normal and there'll be some outlandish expression of, you know, we're all going to walk around with cod on our heads. Or something. I know what you mean, yeah, because I saw the phrase starting to turn up in, like, the end of March, talking about what's the new normal going to look like. It's like we've been locked down for about five minutes and things are changing so rapidly that, well, if if, th if things are in a constant state of flux, there is no normal. That's the thing that's distinctive about it. And well, that's a good point, yeah. And, and yet, you know, I mean, we do we do definitely fall into conventional patterns. And, and uh, as I say, you know, that's the... I guess that's the whole point about why it's healthy sometimes to have to break out things. Healthy for us, I should say. I mean, you know, I am conscious that you mentioned the hospitality industry. I mean, a lot of people have really, really suffered um, badly through this. And, and you know, it's all it's all very well sitting here and saying, oh, yeah, it's been great for us. But I do think, you know, we've got to, we should acknowledge that, you know, it's been very, very difficult for a lot of those people. Yeah. Um, you know, and you know, I'm worried about, I'm worried about where this leaves a lot of young people Yes. I've got two teenage daughters, both of whom were due to sit public exams, GCSEs and A-levels. The speed with which that was all kiboshed and the way in which that sort of pulled the rug from under them, I think that we need to do some making good there for that generation of people yeah. Um, yeah. Who, who may... Yeah, I think, I think there's, there's been some... There's been a lot more downsides than upsides to this, and I consider myself very lucky that I can say that for, for, for our work and for our organisation, um, I can see some positives. I know that's not the case across No, the you're absolutely right. I shuddered uh, all the way through this thinking about if this had happened when I was still in, in hospitality, and we're not even going back that far. I'm talking about, um, what, what are we, I'm talking about 18 months ago, I was still a barista, you know, before uh, coming in here full time. Uh, yeah, if this happened at any point, um, 
if you know before literally this year or the year before yes i would have been uh, unemployed in my sort of mid 20s back living with my parents and you know uh, in a in a probably quite a severe state of anxiety because it's not like any of my own anything i can do is going to improve things significantly because everyone's in the same problem it's not like if i just got my act together i'd be able to go and get no, new no, employment no, no, no. so so i really do feel for them i'd never actually considered what you thought about there with um you know, having uh, having two young kids who are going through really, really pivotal stages in their education, and I'm presuming it's still a bit of a uh, an unclear future. Is you know what happens this year, what happens next year, what you know, have they done the exams? Are they yet to do them? No, I say the impact was that the 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 public examinations were cancelled very oh. very swiftly. Um, in fact, it's interesting because um, at the moment that we started to started to come out of lockdown. Um, People were moving back into the workplace, strict two metre social distancing. And I think, well, my memory of an examining we were a good two metres apart from everybody anyway. So with the benefit of hindsight, and you know, hindsight's always twenty twenty, you ask yourself, could those exams have gone ahead? But no, I mean, the immediate impact was that everything that they had been studying for and everything that they were focusing upon, that all fell away. Now, um, you know, they both know what they want to do next year. They both they both have uh, uh, study plans for next year. And there were things that they could do to work towards that. I mean, they're, they're interested in performing. So it was actually less about exam results and more about the auditions, which they, you know, successfully gone through anyway. So in that sense, it was fortunate that they have places that are secure anyway and not dependent on, um, on, those, on those results in the way that they are for a lot of other um, candidates was one of them due to start university in September. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My eldest is is uh, is due to go to um, to the Royal Conservatoire of Scotland. Actually, amazing Glasgow. Yeah, is that going ahead or? Yes, we hope so. Yeah, yeah. Um, I say the indications are at the moment that that will all happen in September, and I mean it's still ten weeks away, is it? So a lot could change. Yeah, yeah. For the better. Or not so much. I mean, you know, we see that there have been a few spikes going up in other places. There's a, there's a great deal of uncertainty. Um, but I think, you know, if this situation recurs, they'll probably have to manage it a bit differently. I don't think they can just do these blanket lockdowns. I don't think they can afford no. to put everybody on a blanket lockdown. Yeah, because that's what I've seen going on social media, especially amongst young people. Uh, younger people, obviously, are earlier on in their career. They haven't had to ma- often haven't had to manage budgets, finances, teams, people as much. Uh, people who aren't as clued up about, you know, people who will complain saying, oh, why do you care about the economy so much and not people? Well, it's, the reason we have a furlough scheme is you have a healthy economy, for mm. example. You know, it's like mm. it, it helps to be working and doing and buying and, and doing all that stuff. It's not just for lining the pockets of monopoly men. But um, but on the university thing, it's definitely like, if, if that was me in, in your eldest uh, daughter's position. I, I think I'd be just putting it off till the year after. I, I uh, and I, I think that's probably going to happen a lot. One of my flatmates is on the. Uh, he's a PhD at Manchester, trying to help uh, in uh, uh, crops grow better in Nepal because of climate change and all that stuff. But regardless, he helps to manage the um, uh, the sort of the mountaineering club. And he's saying we're expecting fifty percent drop off this year. Wow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, well, those undergraduates come in. They provide the funding for the university. That provides the funding for the research. It's going to have a... It's really hard to know, though. What would everybody do? I mean, it's one thing to take a gap year when you can travel and when there's work. Mm. But is it so attractive if, you know, if all that's at an end, it's like, actually, I've got a place, I've got somewhere to go. Yeah. And I think the, the, the thing that's been hardest for a lot of people to deal with through this lockdown is the lack of structure. Yes. Um, you know, if, if, if you haven't had an ongoing work commitment that's kept you busy and, and been in that, you know, fortunate position as I, say, as I have, it's not so easy. So well, what do you do? You know, what are you going to do today? Yeah. Um, so I think it'd be interesting to see. Who knows? I'm not very good on forecasting. No, I don't think anyone is. I think, you know, predictions are out the window and have been getting worse and, you know, worse for four years. <clears throat> and, you know, I suppose we dare not talk about the uh, the presidential election because, you know, I think there, um, four years ago, I was like... Uh, 
there's no chance of uh, Donald Trump getting a term in office as president. Don't be stupid. And there you go, yeah, he did it. Now it's a case of uh, things have gone so wrong in the USA this year, there's no chance he's getting a second term. So I don't even jinx it, don't even say it. I think the thing is that, that forecasting always forecasts the mundane things, the yeah. usual fluctuations, all the cataclysmic events. The reason they're cataclysmic is because they were not forecast. Yeah, probably, unexpected. Probably not forecastable. You know, yes. you can't you can't see those things coming. Um, the really important things are the things that you never saw coming. Nobody saw this coming. Yeah, yeah. And so, well, interestingly, so let's let's uh, wind the clocks back a bit because um, you obviously are creative director of Manchester's branch of the Am Partnership, but you started back in London, didn't you? I did. That was my yeah. Those were my first agency jobs. Not originally from London. I'm a you know north enough from birth, but um, yeah, travelled down there after completing my studies in this great city. Um, travelled down to London. It. I mean, initially not to work in advertising because when I was studying at Manchester Poly, I really concentrated on drawing caricatures of people. Yeah, yeah. And um, goofing around like that. So when I went down to London, I was looking really to work on the editorial circuit, doing illustrations. And then the first kind of job that I got, job job, was actually a, a, on a series of spitting image, drawing caricatures um, for, for, for the series, which we, we'd have to draw them and get them approved and model them up in clay. And it was, you know, it was kind of quite a, um, quite a bizarre process, really. It's been 48 hours since we declared independence. Either the European Parliament has backed down or they're still at lunch. Um, but I was there and I say at that time, I, I didn't really, I'd, I'd known people who'd been studying the ad, on, on the advertising course in Manchester. But it wasn't until I actually got to London and then I was, I was doing that and I met up with an old mate who'd been on the advertising course and he said, well, how's it going? You, know, you really hit the big time, you know, spitting image and all this and doing drawings for GQ and Time Out and this, that and the other. And I sort of went, hmm. And I think the trouble was that I, I felt I was always drawing up somebody else's idea. Yeah. I was always having to draw someone else's concept. And I said, yeah, I, I wanted to have more ownership of the idea. Um, and I enjoyed the, the, you know, the writing aspects of it. I thought it was funny the way, you know, the writing comedy sketches and things like that looked good. But again, the writers on, um, on, on television series had an even more hard time fit than the, the people drawing the cast. So I said, I don't, I don't know. And he Why said, did the writers have a hard time? I think because they were all freelance and I think it was just really, really difficult. You a hand to mouth. Yeah, absolutely. Really, really hard. And I was just, so I was sort of bemoaning this and saying, well, I don't know what I want to do. And he said, well, sorry, you want, to, you want my job. You know, you, you just want to work in an ad agency. That's what you should do. And then you could do a bit of drawing and you could do a bit of writing and you could do it. And um, so that was really where, where that came off. And then it was, I mean, it was a, a deep and dark recession. So... Alongside everything else, I was putting together a, a student book of concepts with um, John Lilio. I teamed up with there. We were, he was working as a motorcycle courier, and we we did all sorts of things. We worked as debt collectors and anything we could really to supplement our income during those dark days. What was um, the what time was that recession? Uh... We're talking early nineties, right? Okay. Yeah, yeah. We're talking sort of ninety one to ninety three, really. And then um, first job was BBH. In, um, in, yeah, 1993. Yeah, maybe and, the um, greatest British agency, like British-born agency, who knows? I think it was, I mean, it was a fantastic place. Um, they jealously guarded their creative reputation. I think the time we joined, it was that year or the next year, they, they'd won agency of the year, two years in a row. Um, <clears throat> and they were, you know, they were on top of the world creatively and there was a brilliant creative department there. Um, it was Graham Watson and Bruce Crouch who, hired us and um, they had people like uh, Mike Wells and, and, and Tom Barnett. Yeah, Nick Worthington and John Gorse were there and it was, yeah, I mean, it was a, there was a fantastic creative department that we were joining and we were the sort of the lowest of the low um, sort of scumbag junior team. Yeah. Um, what were you so, doing at the time, just working on like mail, direct mail campaigns or? We used to nickel the Audi briefs to write press ads for, for, for Audi. I mean, we were, we were working on WH Smith's a lot of the time, which was their kind of retail. Back when that was a giant. And there was, and there was a lot of that to do, you know, quick turnaround, um, sort of sales ads for, you know, three quid off this book and CDs and that at, 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 um, at WH Smith's. But then we would, we would have nicked the Audi brand app briefs 
and we would work on them in the afternoon and usually into the evenings and um, and then slip those into, into the pile. Hegarty's in-tray. And um, it was when the, the account group came out and they said, oh, you know that ad you wrote for the for the, the diesel car? Yeah, yeah, that's the one Hegarty's picked. It Brilliant. was the Zippo's ad, which got us in DNAD. So that was that was a, not a bad way to start in our first job. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, it was a wonderful time, a wonderful, uh, a wonderful time and a, a, a wonderful first job in advertising, really. Um, Where did you go after BBH? We went to URRCG. We were hired there uh, by Mark Winnick during his tenure there. And that again, was a very, a, very, a very significant change in many ways from BBH, very different culture. But, um, I mean, we had a lot of fun there working there. Again, we worked mostly on... Um, it was sort of car press ads that we were kind of cutting our teeth on in those days because we'd done a lot of the Audi press campaign, um, as I say, at BBH. And then we did um, the, the Peugeot humpback bridge ad for the 106 GTI, which I remember Jeremy Clarkson made a big fuss about at that time on Top Gear, said it was the best car he thought he'd ever seen. Anyway, you know, it was it was all a lot of fun. And um, But, um, yeah, I mean, thinking back to it, and I suppose that we want to get on to thinking about music on yeah. ads and, and the music music on ads that I admire. I guess that two of my... <clears throat> there, are, there are three things that really stood out for me when I think musically about the ads that, that BBH had done. And it's not the obvious things like, you know, the old laundrette ad for, with, with Marvin Gaye and things like that. Um, when Nick Worthington and John Gorse got to with... The, the two really iconic ads that they did, the Creek ad, and then after that, the drugstore ad, I thought was really, really interesting. Obviously, Creek had the trap that was put on there that was the Stiltskin trap, but effectively it was Pete Lawler who'd found that fantastic guitar riff. And, and that was a, a brilliant moment in that ad. Um, and that was quite interesting because they'd always tended to use pre-existing music that was a famous track in its own right. And here was something that they were putting out there where effectively it was a piece of music that had been composed for the ad. Yes. And then that became a single in its own right. And then what they did on Drugstore was so different. It was that, um, it was the kind of 30s depression era film, you know, black and white shot with the train coming through and, and the level crossing and all of that. And I'd seen sort of rushes for this, and I wondered what they were going to do musically with it. And I imagined it would be, again, something that felt kind of American and rock or, you know, something roots rock or country-based or something like that, because it was Levi's. And they stuck this house track on there, this, this biosphere, and you thought, wow. And it was so great, the kind of clickety-clack of the drumbeat with the, with the locomotive, you know, it just felt really, really right. Yeah. And there were little bits of, 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 within the audio, there was bits of spoken voice. It was sort of indistinct, but that kind of matched up with the pharmacist when he was talking. So it all fell into place and it, it just gave it this edge of cool. Yeah. And I think that's a really, really interesting thing when you put music on that's quite a counterpoint to the action. Um, you know, it, it's a very cinematic thing to do that. Um, and I think, you know, you can admire work like that and that's that's kind of beautiful work and then you know one of the other beautiful executions that I admired was the you know that famous Honda at the, the, the Impossible, Impossible Dream, Dream yeah. with the Andy Williams yeah. you know and it's it's great but that's there's a little bit of camp humour about that of course in the way it's cast and the way that the, the actors sing in it and you know having sort of waxed lyrical a little bit about what I admired about Creek and Drugstore but the thing was it was all achingly cool achingly cool yeah. and BBH was like that it was all dripping with cool very very you know sort of homages to film noir and, and you know American uh, Americana and iconography and things like that and I think it wasn't it, it, it wasn't something that actually came very naturally to me to sort of be in with those beautiful people because you know I'm just a bit of a bumpkin really from a village up near Bradford. It's the northern thing, I, yeah. Yeah, I didn't even know advertising existed when I went on my foundation course. I, you know, I didn't, you know, I had no concept of it really and it was quite a revelation to me when I came and studied here in Manchester there were people on a course 
studying advertising, yeah, like, you know, studying yeah. sandwich making or something. I, I didn't really get it, you know. Were you were you like uh, me insofar as you? I, at one point, I didn't know that an advertising agency was a thing. I thought brands just did everything in house. Exactly right. Yeah. I assumed that companies advertised their products, and that was something that they did. It, it, it was. It was quite a revelation to me, as I say, coming here to see that there's a whole industry. This is a subject. Yes. You can get a degree in this. You can get a job in this. Yeah, and um, for creative people, I've talked to... Yeah, go on. As I say, you know, when I... When I, when I it, it's so much so that, in a way, perhaps I've pursued the wrong path at college, and it wasn't until I got to London, as I say, and then I was... I would, Obviously, I was aware then, I, I, you know, having been through that there were these people who studied advertising and there were these companies that did adverts. You know, that that penny had dropped. But it still hadn't quite occurred to me that this was the job I wanted yeah. until I was doing a job that I was finding wasn't really rewarding me. And then, you know, over a pint with a mate and he said, you want to work in an agency? This is this is what you want to do. Yeah. Um, and, and, and so that was when it all fell into place. But as I say, I don't really... I don't really think again that it came very naturally to me to join the the, the sort of the more um, the more glamorous and 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 uh, kind of slick sheen of advertising that was so brilliantly applied by BBH in those in those glory days um, because I think a lot of the advertising that had appealed to me was really rather silly yeah um, and I think there is this I think it's great you know to have wonderful beautiful advertisements there but i think generally you know you you in a lot of the, a lot of instances you're you're talking to a plumber in pontefract who's not that fussed about film noir and who doesn't really know a lot about icons of americana and who doesn't really see the word like that but likes a laugh yeah and um you know another great bbh ad from just a bit before we joined was was the phileas fog one for the um, the tortilla chips with the and i, I mean and this is the thing that I think advertising's probably lost a bit. The, this this idea of the brilliant silly song. Yeah. Um, and I mean, the way it all works is you've got the whole thing is sung in sort of cod Mexican with with a John Lloyd translation. And I forget exactly what I was My mother came from a poor family, and you know the whole tragedy has spelled out how she built this fantastic reputation selling these tortilla chips. But then disaster, she was exposed, and they were all actually from um, made made in Medemsley Road concert and that's sort of silly rug pull and the humor of that now that was um that was Stephen Dennis who wrote that at BBH and I just love advertising like that that makes me laugh and I I also remember the the kind of advertising that I grew up on really through the 70s and 80s there was a lot of silly songs in advertising you know whether it was Frank Muir singing about you know fruit and nut or whatever it might be going right through to yeah, even stuff like quick fit fitters, which I don't think anybody holds up as being, you know, fantastic artistry. But to this day, if you go, you know, you can't get better than a, a quick fit. You know you what remember it is. It. Yeah, exactly. And and that's a powerful piece of advertising. One of the things that I, I, I say a lot in in my role in the agency is, you know, I don't see myself as we're not curating an art gallery here. You know, this is communication. Yes, and we're not. You know, we are not selling here designer goods or luxury goods. Not all the time. When we are, we need to better wind that up. But a lot of the time, you're selling ordinary stuff to ordinary people mm. who, you know, like and share cat memes and enjoy a laugh and are simple-minded enough to find a custard pie fight hilarious. <laughs> and actually tapping into that, you know, as, as look at a lot of the successful campaigns we've seen like the meerkats just shows that people have still got this tremendous appetite and sense of fun and i I think you know it's it's a shame really that that because when you look back at a lot of those ads they're brilliantly well crafted brilliantly well written the way the lyrical content actually envelops all the product points and all the messages are in there written in rhyme set to music quite a copywriting undertaking you know how many Copywriters today would really feel comfortable to be able to write a set of lyrics to the tune of Oh Sole Mio about an ice cream. Yeah. And yet it's a brilliant thing to do. And when you've done it and everybody, you know, everybody remembers just one coronetto. And that's it. You know, you're there. How many years later? Yeah. And everybody knows that. And it's it's famous and fun. Yeah. I, uh, I was reflecting on that. A fair bit over the last few years, because I only came into advertising 2017 onwards. And um, 
wondered at times if sort of London was kind of just selling to itself, you know, as in all the adverts, uh, all the ads are very cool, uh, going for a very cinematic, uh, high art feel, quite abstract. And like you say, there's nothing, even even Honda Gur, you know, has, is appealing to that kind of a bit more of that silliness and a bit more real. A bit more. Maybe, and yet it's weird because, you know, even even as I recall about, um, you know, say that, that golden era at BBH, I mean... People were people were down the pub drinking a lot more than they should, and, and, right, and yeah. you know the, the behaviour was much more like what you'd expect to have seen in a harp advert, yes, yeah, <laughs> than, than, than what you would have seen in, in, in what we were putting out there. No, I think it was a cultural a, a, a cultural set of aspirations that probably came to the fore in the the eighties. Everything became much more about those kinds of aspirations towards the end of that decade, and the the kind of I, I think that was just what people thought was fun at that time, and I don't know that it was the London set being very very London about it, because actually the London set were quietly and in their own time, just as likely to be, you know, larking about and yeah. you know having a laugh and singing silly songs down the pub in their own time. But it was just what we purported to aspire to felt like something much more poised uh, and and. Um, and kind of glamorous, and I think I think it's interesting because popular culture changed, <clears throat> and I don't you know I, I don't miss novelty records in the charts like you know Joe Dolce and the Birdie song and stuff yeah. like that, but th- I mean there were I mean there were great examples like you know Jilted John Gordon is a moron which were really really superb records in their own right but there was quite a lot more humour sometimes even in serious culture I mean you listen to um, performers like Ian Dury I mean a lot of those songs are just really really funny narratives mm. with Ricky Dicky and things like that My Old Man yeah, yeah or, and, and, and even you, you know Hit Me With Your Rhythm Stick I mean yeah. it's just lyrically brilliant and incredibly silly and just great fun. Madness, fantastic back mm. at the time. You know, again, never at all self-conscious about clowning around. Mm. Um, and, and, you know, they've got this enduring appeal. They stood the test of time in, in the way that a lot of the more um, kind of refined and, uh, and, and manicured uh, proponents of the new Romantic Age kind of haven't. Mm. Um, and I think I just think that's quite interesting because I think there are there are so many things that you can do with music um, to land an idea with people, and yeah, you know, it stirs emotions and it and it and it, it evokes eras and 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 uh, excitement and all sorts of things, but also it, it can just be just quite infectious and just get under your skin. You just you know, you can remember jingles, you can remember um, stuff that's set to music. And, I, and, and again, I, th- I think people just enjoyed this a lot in popular culture. If you looked at what was on the television in those days, a lot of it from, you know, Jasper Carrot to the two Ronnies involved a strong musical element in light entertainment, which probably came all the way through from the music hall and variety tradition. Yeah. Again, of people performing silly songs. You know, even going back to light English opera and Gilbert and Sullivan, you know, the place of the silly song. Yeah. And 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 you know, you can be variously more highbrow about it or or or, <coughs> or just get get more into just the the silliness of it. I mean, you know, the the Monty Python crew were, you know, extraordinary intellectuals. Yes. But again, understood the value of Silly songs. Yeah, I'm going to power a silly songs. I'm going to put forward a specious hypothesis here because it's just off the top of my head, but you know, one has to start somewhere. Uh, you described a lot of entertainers from the Morecambe and Wise to Ronnie's era who'd grown up in harder times and maybe needed to, uh, you know, entertainment was about alleviating the, you know, the tragic sense of life, whereas things have been a lot easier for the last 30 to 40 years and maybe there's a, a feeling that we need things to be more serious because, or, you know, we need to aspire to something grander. Yeah, I don't know. I think it could be. It could be that it's just a bit more self-congratulatory, as you say, just to go, oh, you know, what would be great on here? What would be a really cool track, you know, that I really want to use? Let's put this on. Yeah. Just throw a load of money at a publishing company to do it. Happens so much. 
And I, I think it's interesting to work out why did it change, what changed. Mm. Um, I think because, because there's certainly a lot of monetary resources thrown now at licensing tracks. Um, and I suppose you could say, well, production-wise, it would be pretty expensive and pretty time-consuming to have made and recorded a lot of the stuff. You know, if you look at, you know, it was his, his idea, we all come down to do it all, they got it all here, the price has knocked us out, they make us twist and shout, everywhere there's a helpful do-it-all idea, and then you put that there with a band and you get a sax player and you're doing this. So the copywriter's got to write all that and work in all the different product points in there, and you've got to get it in there and you've got to record it, and then you it's probably quite a lot of money and quite a big number, and then... Now, what if the client, when he hears it back, goes, ooh. Yeah, I'm not sure mm, about that. Yeah. Not sure about that. Whereas, you know, if you sort of just said, well, suppose we use this track by Squeeze on it. Oh, yeah, I love Squeeze. Or, yeah. Oh, I don't like, you know, and then, and then you know, you've got an answer. It's there. Everybody knows what it is. Or you can just endlessly dig <clears throat> through the bin of library music for a similar track. Yeah, because there's obviously a lot of trust and a lot of faith in saying, we've written these lyrics. Yeah, okay, right, you know, take this and imagine this sung to the tune of okay okay and we're going to go for this kind of instrumentation so it will sound like this band quite a leap of faith though in saying yeah, is it and maybe that's why it doesn't happen but i think it's a shame um and i think <clears throat> where we can it would be nice to sort of re-explore that as a as a creative avenue. I wonder if it's if it's all associated with the, the transformation that's happened since the 90s that I, I hear about more and more. I'm currently reading Steve Harrison's book, Can't Sell, Won't Sell. <coughs> and um, it's about the fact that creative used to be king. The creative director used to be whoever on bow to all the agency people and the client yeah, as well. Yeah, still the king, mate. Right? <laughs> still the case with oh, Talk yeah, Talk, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. As soon as you walk in. Uh-huh. But, um, they know it. But uh, what happened? When was it? Was it when they did the digital, Steve Harrison's book asserts the digital revolution meant the clients get, uh, got to thinking, we don't need expensive creative anymore. We don't need expensive agencies because we have these digital tools that will allow us just to go straight to the eyeballs of our end user. And we can sort of just put the sales message on there. I'm sure there was a bit of that, you know, that when, when it, it, there certainly was a sense that when, the brilliant opportunities of targeting first came to the fore. There was a tendency to think, oh, great, I can save a load of money here then and put it into that. I think, you know, a more rational realisation's now come to bear that you need you need the things working in tandem. You need the right targeting, you need the right messaging, you need the, the right creative, you need all that to come together. Um, so I think... I think that, that certainly the clients that I talk to are, are, are alive to that now and know that you can't just chuck anything out there. Um, was it a, one of those, it sounds unlikely that it would be a David, a David Abbottism, but I think it is a David Abbottism that shit delivered at speed is still shit yeah. that arrives. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, I think people, people have, have, have kind of worked, worked that one through now. Yeah. But no, I don't think, it, I think it is just that there is quite a lot of complexity and there's quite a lot of bravery required perhaps in a way to say, Okay, let's record a bespoke piece of music. But I mean, maybe a lot of those tracks weren't originally envisaged as being something you were going to end up using mm. for years. I bet what happened was someone said, Oh, here's the new ad for whatever. And it's, you know, it's a Cockney song and it's based on this. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, great. We'll do that. And then they recorded it. It kind of really, really did, went gangbusters for them. And so then the brief came around the next year. So, what's we? Oh, we'd like to get those guys back again. Could we not just do yeah. another version of that, you know? And, and 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 then these things became a fixture. Yeah. Without necessarily anybody having originally presented them and said, here's your idea for the next five years. It's going to be this. It's like what you were saying at, at the beginning. It wasn't necessarily, it was, it was, it was something that couldn't have been forecasted. Yeah, and, and I'm sure they would have dropped these things like a stone. I mean, you know, you, you, it's crazy. Isn't it? Nuts, holes, all nuts. Oi, cabaret steak. You, you, you wouldn't necessarily think that was going to stick. But then it does stick, and you, you, you see it happening, and, you you know, you, you realise, you know, kids are singing it in the playground and yeah. telling jokes about it, and you think, OK, we, we've got something here. Yeah. And it's, you know, like, a, like a, I suppose, like a, like a hit record. You can't predict it. Yeah. Once yeah. it's once it's there, if it's still in the charts, 
keep pressing the albums. I'm wondering when the sync, when in your view, the sync revolution, so to speak, happened. You know, we're now in such a, a sync-heavy advertising world. Everyone wants to take a track they like and go to the label and get a price for it and put it on the thing. And um, I, I don't know if that was always the case as strongly as it uh, has been since things like Surfer, since things like, you know, Levi's and BBH. Um, and I wonder if also in part it's been driven by the need from the music industry to find new sources of revenue and more aggressive selling. When did you see it starting to happen that a known track would be synced much more than... But I, I don't know if it's down to that because a lot of the best executions that I'm talking about back in the day were based on, you know, I mean, let's think about Scotch videotapes, which used the Rolling Stones track. They must have had to pay yeah. a significant consideration. And there must have been quite a negotiation to say, look, we want to rework your track, you know, re-record, not fade away, and have this old bloke skeleton saying, I'm going to tell you how it's going to be, you know, and, and do it like that. That must have been quite a complicated thing to, to do. Mm-hmm. So I don't know, and, and, and it must have been quite a money spinner for the music company because it's like, well, hang on a minute, your whole idea is predicated on this track. So if we say no, you got to hide it. You got to write the whole thing again. It's not just like, oh, you want to license our track? Shit! If we say no, will they just go and try, try and license that other track by that other band? Yeah, it sounds a bit like it. Yeah, you know, it's tricky. Whereas when 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 you've got something like that, so I don't know. I think there was always a, a money making opportunity. I'm sure for the for the music companies and for the artists yeah. in that old world. I wonder if it's um, just the artists didn't want to. You know, they had n- less recourse. I don't know less reason to be seen associated with adverts. Adverts weren't and aren't cool for music artists, you know, for a long time. Right, yeah, and a lot of and a lot of music artists, you know, were famously declared, you know, we will not, you know, Neil Young, no way, not yeah. going anywhere near it. You know, this note's for you. I don't put music on advertising, and that's been his his ethos. Um, and and there will always be people who will say, no, we don't want that. Some of them will effectively do that by putting a ludicrous price tag on it, which is perhaps a little bit less morally defensible. It's just mm. saying, oh, well, I'll do it if you really, really enrich me to the tune of 300 grand, but otherwise I'm not yeah. doing it. You know? Or 500 grand, as we found with, uh, with Paul Simon. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, there you go. But, I mean, again, the, this the music has terrific potential value to brands, as I say, the fact that I could probably reel off, I, could, I mean, you know, I've done, a, I've done a few, but I could reel off half a dozen musical ads from back in the day that must have just gone into my head. Maybe it says something about me, but there's a lot of tunes that I don't remember from those days, and there's a lot of adverts that I do, and it's the ones with music on that were entertaining and comedic for me that, that, that went in, and I'm thinking... I don't think that's that's something that's that's unique. I think I think that, and I think that's a tool that we're not using very much now. Um, if there are obstacles in the way that the music industry works now, if we encounter them, that's one thing. But what I see is very very few times do you, do you get brought a script by a team that's like, okay, this is all set to this piece of music, and we're gonna, you know, we're gonna re-sing it, we're gonna do it like this, we're gonna put these lyrics with it. I've written, I've written some lyrics for for how it would go. Yeah. Um, <laughs> John Lilly and I, we used to we used to love larking about with this. We had this great idea that that, that some, somebody ought to make this campaign for Frazzles. We had this whole idea, this whole idea for Frazzles that we'd written, which was you know with the maracas. You look like a bacon. You smell like a bacon. You taste like a bacon. But I got wise. You're a frazzle in disguise. And that was the, the that was the whole premise of it. And I think that would have been a brilliant campaign. But you could never have taken that to a creative director. You'd have been laughed out of the room. And you certainly, if you went to, I wonder who owns the publishing on that now, and they'd be able to ask for an awful lot for that. Yeah, I'm sure they would, and that that's right. But I mean, would it cost you more? to license that than it would to have licensed the, you know, the original You're, you're the Devil in Disguise. I don't know. I, you know, then you'd have to go and re-record it. And, yeah, of course. But, um, you know, again, I'm sure, I'm sure there's a great, there's a great ad campaign waiting to be done for Deliveroo, 
Yes. Right? And it's on it's in the jungle, the quiet jungle. Mm. So you, you're gonna have that deliveroo. But going on in the background, you've got this scooter driver who's bringing your food to you and all the way he's going, I'm on my way, I'm on my way, I'm on my way. I'm, I'm, come on, that's just, that's, that's got such potential. But if we would still go near that kind of humour, because that wouldn't be, you know... If the delivery clients see this, that's, that's my pitch. Yeah, well, we'll try and get it to them. <laughs> but, you know, I'm worried about them going, well, we saw what Ikea did with Mother and they had a grime track on an Ikea, so maybe we just want to go more with that kind of thing. Uh, yeah. It could be, it could be, as I say, but, but it's whether... Being achingly cool is the way forward. Yeah. You know, because, because yeah, it depends what you're selling. But, you know, if you're selling a trio chocolate biscuit or something like that, then actually this is just good and silly. Yeah, like you said, not, not everything is Armani, you know. No, that's right, that's right. And, and, and you know, for, you know, bacon-flavoured corn snacks and things like that, a little bit of light-hearted humour seem to me to be a just a just a great way to bring these things to life and make and make ads that are entertaining and that stick in them in in the memory you know it's so easily attributable it couldn't be for anyone else and attribution is such a thing these days now obviously you know we work across lots and lots of channels digital formats sound off sound on um so you know you you need something that work that works in other channels as well maybe it's because people don't see the TV commercial as being the kingpin that it was back in the day. Um, so they're always thinking about, well, that's all very well. I can do that in a 30-second commercial. But, you know, where, where do I take it on a on a piece of digital display? Yeah. Which is a fair, you know, that's a fair consideration. But nonetheless, you know, I think, I think you know, rumours of the death of television advertising are, are greatly exaggerated. Yeah. And it does still remain a key driver for most big advertisers. And again, it's where you're running a TV ad for those types of products and for those types of audiences, I think there's a lot of crossover where a humorous approach is, is you know, really, really strongly indicated. Yeah. And the other thing as well is the potential for global brands of recognisable music. Now, a lot of, you know, global brands are alive to this and they use um, brand mnemonics. I mean, you know, everybody knows the McDonald's, you know, the... I I was working at, at Leo Burnett. John and I were there when that first came in. I think it must have been about 2002, 2003 that it was it was the we were working on scripts for McDonald's and we were going to be writing some of the first UK ads that were going to have that little. Mm. I could have whistled that better, couldn't I? Well, you know, it's okay when no one's judging you on <laughs> whistling ability. Thanks. Still can't do it. Yeah. Um, that had that little music sting on the end. Yeah. So. You know, the, the, that that initial reaction, you, know, you can imagine, you know, we were thinking, mm, OK, and a lot of creative teams were saying, oh, God, have we got to put that crap on the end of these McDonald's ads? But I was thinking to myself, well, I don't know. I think if they commit to it and they stick with it and they run with it for yonks and yonks, and sure enough, here we are now, you know. Yeah, yeah it is synonymous later. with the brand. And it's absolutely there. And the thing is, it's there wherever you go. Yes. You know, you go to Portugal on the TV and that comes on, you don't know what they're talking about. You hear that, you know that you've, that was a McDonald's ad. And so I think that's, that's an important thing about, about music as well. It's, it's a kind of universal international language. Yeah. Yeah. And even if you were, you know, even if you're not using the, the, the kind of humorous lyrical approach that I've been advocating for most of this, that idea of how that translates into a jingle you know, washing machines live longer with Calcon, that kind of thing. If you sang that in Greek to the same melody, I'd know it was a Calcon ad. Yeah, really frustrating, actually. You know, I, we, I was on board with this all the way and, you know, we just uh, did, and you know, across the board, across all media, uh, mnemonic for a brand uh, last year and it went into administration this year as a result of coronavirus. Yeah, so yeah. don't know if we're going to get to see it play out. But I was so on board for it because... Like you say, a little motif is equivalent to a great theme music, a piece of theme music from a film. Yeah. Know, and it brings it to mind. Well, I mean, it's something that um, just around the time that, that we opened up here in Manchester, it was a project that had been essentially architected by the previous team for us in London, but it was a brand mnemonic for Talk Talk. Yeah, I've seen it. And, um, you know, I, I think there's there's potential there. I do. I think, you know, it's a, it's a really, really simple sort of six note figure that if it's committed to 
if it's iterated in different ways, given different voicings that are suitable to different emotions. So, you know, you might play it on a piano here, you might yeah. play it with a brass band or an orchestra there. If we look at a few different ways of slicing it, but if we stick with it, it could actually have some power. Now, you know, that's that's even just for a domestic brand, not even for the, the global brand that wants to be able to cross international borders, but just that simple memorability. Yes. Um, well, I've already got it in my head, you know, as we're talking about it. So, yeah. so another one you mean. Um, yeah, I feel, you know, we're, um, we should probably think about wrapping up soon, but I did just want to get your take on, um, before we finish, uh, what it's like having your main client in the same building and how they are to work with Talk Talk, you know, and what kind of... Terrific, yeah. wonderful. What else can I say? <laughs> <laughs> but it's quite different, right? I suppose when you were in Soho, it, w- or it wouldn't have been as... Well, it wasn't the way in, in previous agencies that I'd worked at, although I, I did a stint working at um, the Daily Mail Group Trust in their in-house creative department, so I'd had that experience. I mean, the USP of the AND partnerships, I say, is not that it is an in-house or an implant agency. Uh, it is actually our one-team philosophy, which basically means combining our own internal teams across media and creative and strategy, um, but also working in proximity with the clients. So that means, you know, we tend to be sighted close to a, a, a key client office. And as it happens, we are in the same building as Talk Talk. We have our own front door. We have our own space in there. Mm. Um, I think it works really, really well, but it's quite interesting, really, because we were talking earlier about coronavirus and the, the effect of, of that, you know, dissipating teams. And, and, and when the... If it appears that the USP of the agency is the geographic proximity, that's not necessarily what it's all about, because we've demonstrated that, you know, even when we're spread out and we're working in separate buildings and in separate environments, as we have been over these last few weeks... That that's been that's been something that we've just adapted to very very easily. I think the real thing is is the sense of kinship and the sense of being a connected and collaborative team. I think that's what's appealed to uh, uh, to, to the clients that that have taken up the AM partnerships offering. I think that's what it's been all about. Um, I mean, Johnny Hornby elsewhere will wax lyrical much more effectively than me about the AND model and about the key tenets of it, but it is this sense of being one team. Um, and I think it's, I think it's paying, uh, paying dividends to us, actually, because there is an opportunity for us to get much closer to the clients and really get under the skin of their business. Um, as creatives, particularly, you feel this, because you're often much more at arm's length. I mean, obviously, client services and strategy and planning and media, client-facing roles anyway, have a lot of FaceTime. Whereas with, within the creative department, apart from getting wheeled out as the kind of cabaret act for the creative presentation to talk them through the, the, the scripts and the slides, creative teams don't necessarily get enough exposure to the clients yeah. and get enough time to really, really understand what their concerns are and what they're looking for. Yeah. Um, earlier today, we were involved in a, a, a group session with the whole of our brand team, just looking through the visual assets that have been developed on the on the brand over the last year, comparing where the, the previous visual assets were, and a, a really collaborative meeting with everybody sharing thoughts. And that was really, really useful for us to gain those insights from the clients. Now, I think, as I say, it's, it's that we've been able to, I think I, I said this earlier, kind of, we built up a good credit rating by working closely with one another, which has meant that whilst we've been in this period of being separated, we've we've had that credit to draw upon. Um, but I think that the, the, the real point is that the agency's model of the way the agency likes to do business is to forge that sense of a connected team so that those more uninhibited conversations can take place with everybody in the room, with the client and all the agency in the room. And yeah. I certainly feel that from the creative department's perspective, that's very refreshing um, to, to have that. And yeah. to be there, as I say, with we, we did an initial top-line creative presentation within the last week where we had the media guys there. So we're sharing our initial creative ideas. They're there thinking about their media plan 
And we're asking ourselves at that early stage, well, how do these things join up? What they're looking at the ideas and thinking, wow, now I see, because they're very good. They understand creative work really, really well. You know, they're very, very good. They're thinking, I see the shape of this idea. I see the kind of media formats that it would, that it would fit well in. And equally, they can say to us, look, <clears throat> there's a media format here that's a bit sticky, but it really, really washes its face from a commercial point of view. You've got to try and find a way to accommodate this within the idea. So we're getting an early look at that, an early sight of saying, OK, we've got to find a way to make this work within this particular envelope, which, you know, we can do early on, whereas you get too far down the line on it and it's added in as an afterthought. But from a commercial point of view, as a piece of media, it's not an afterthought. It's, you know, it's a central stanchion of of the of the of the campaign. So I think it's been really, really useful for us to be able to do that. And that's really what this is all about, the um us working in that one building um together, as I say, with our media partners and, and working closely and collaboratively with our clients. It's not necessarily though about the strict geographical nature of that, because once that team's been established and that spirit of working, as we've shown over the last few weeks, the the kind of relationships are there to 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 carry forward. Yeah, yeah, and I can real I can really see the benefit of everyone being on site because there's a, there's a number of times when we said this problem is only going to be solved if everyone's all in the same room, you know, and as in the people who need to have the conversations with, you know, the creative director or even the client are never going to try and attempt those conversations because they're not around them enough to get comfortable to have that conversation. It's true. And, and advertising campaigns and advertising problems are so complicated yeah. these days, yeah. you know. And there are so many times in, in meetings when questions crop up and you think, oh, I'm so glad Gareth's here or so-and-so is here to talk about that because the short answer is, I don't know. Mm. I don't know the answer to that. Yeah. But here's a person who does. And it's just very frustrating if you have a whole series of meetings where you don't have everybody in the room and people are either endlessly having to say, I don't know, I'll have to come back to you on that, or worse still, feigning knowledge. Yeah, that's <laughs> and, always And giving worst. the wrong answer, which is always a curse. Yeah. But yeah, hopefully we, 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 we avoid that. And that, that's really what it's all about. So that's what working in the client's building's designed to achieve. And that's what it, that's what it does achieve, I think. Great. Well, um, should, we, should we wrap it up there? I'm happy if you are. Yeah, yeah. I can sense Patrick getting nervous. Do you want to cut that? <laughs>